reading from Genesis 42, starting with verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognised them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he said, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognised his brothers, they did not recognise him. And then Joseph remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We're all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them, you have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father and one is no more. Joseph said to them, it is just as I told you, you are spies. And this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, You will not leave this place until your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Vero lives, you are spies. And he put them in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back to your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen? Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realise that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep, but then came back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain. He put each man's silver back in his sack and to give them provisions for their journey. And after this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey 
And he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here is my sack. Their hearts sank and they turned to each other trembling and said, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened, all that had happened to them. Thank you, Carl. You might want to keep your Bibles open because uh, we're going to be looking all the way through to the uh, middle of chapter 45 and we'll be reading bits and pieces as we go along. So uh, you might want to keep that in front of you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we praise you that you're a loving God uh, and that you speak to us in uh, words that we can understand Lord, we pray as we reflect on your word this morning that you would speak to those of us, uh, which is all of us, who have painful pasts uh, and uh, things in the past which we regret uh, and things in the past which others have done to us, which have hurt us. Uh, So, Father, please speak the peace of the gospel into uh, our lives. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, we live in a world of uh, broken families, of uh, deep pain, in a world of past hurts, uh, and of serious mistakes that can't be undone. Uh, to give just one example, there was a news report, I don't know if you saw it this week, of a truck driver in the UK who was sentenced to 10 years in prison. He'd killed a mother and her three children he was driving a truck, he'd ploughed into the back of the car without braking, he was flicking through music on his phone uh, and he killed four people. How do you come back from that? Uh, I think the, the family said something like, it's not enough, 10 years is not enough. Uh, in the new Harry Potter play, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, Harry's son Albus uses a time turner to try and alter the past and to make up for some of Harry's mistakes. And one Christian reviewer wrote, how many of us waste countless hours in the land of might have been, reliving past mistakes, sins and hurts, longing for a time turner that, we can, that can take us back and help us to do over our lives. Harry and Albus's struggles were fantastical and yet so relatable to my own. These chapters of Joseph of the Joseph story are about past mistakes that come back to haunt Joseph's brothers and they're about coming to terms with those things, coming to terms with the past. Joseph's brothers had been so jealous of him in his youth that they'd sold him into slavery shipped him off to Egypt and told their father that he'd been killed. How do you come back from that? How do you come back from such deep family divisions? For some of us, those things aren't imaginary. Uh, And our families really are torn apart by things like that. And for many of us, there are other things as well. How do you come back from those things? Well, this chapter, these chapters uh, tell us a bit about that. 
If you weren't here last week, the passage that we looked at foreshadowed a famine in Egypt and the surrounding regions, and through Joseph, God prepared the way. Egypt stockpiled grain for seven years in order to provide for the seven years of famine that God had said would come. And at the beginning of the chapter that we read in chapter 42, that famine has hit the land. It's hit not only Egypt, but it's also hit Joseph's family as well. And so Joseph's father, Jacob, sends the brothers down to Egypt in order to buy grain uh, for the family. And when they arrive, they're brought before their brother Joseph. And he recognises them, uh, but understandably they don't recognise him. Who would think that the brother that they'd thrown into a pit as a slave is now the second in charge of Egypt? Uh, And so they just see him for who he is, uh, this Egyptian ruler, and they bow down before him. And Joseph is immediately reminded of those dreams that he had where he saw that his brothers would bow down before him. They would bow down uh, in honour of him. The dreams that God had given him in his youth have finally come uh, come to pass. But it seems that Joseph realises at that point, it's, it's almost as though as soon as he recognises that God has done what he'd promised, it's almost as, it, as though he begins to see his situation in the light of what God has done. He realises that God wants more than his brother's humiliation. He realises that God wants their lives and their hearts. And over the next few chapters, he sets in, plan, uh, in place a plan to bring that about. As he remembers the dream, his tone shifts surprisingly to hostility. He accuses his brothers of being spies. They protest their innocence. He doesn't listen. He throws them into prison. After three days, he lets them out. But the catch is that one of them has to stay behind. Simeon has to stay behind uh, in prison. And in order to secure his release, they have to go back to his father and they have to bring back the youngest son, Benjamin, who hadn't been allowed to go on the trip. Although Joseph seems hostile, the fact that he keeps turning away and choking back tears suggests that he has something deeper in mind with this plan. It seems over the next five uh, few chapters, as I said, that what he's trying to do is to test his brothers to see where they're at, to see what kind of men they've become. He knows what they were like 20 years ago. He experienced that. But what are they like now? Have they changed? Have they repented for what they've done? Have they acknowledged what they've done to their father? Said, you know what, Dad? Actually, we lied about Joseph. He's in Egypt. Have they dealt with that with God? Are they willing to face up to what they've done? What Joseph does is, it's very clever, he does to them all that they had done to him. He throws them in prison just as he'd been thrown in prison in Egypt. He traps one of them uh, in Egypt, just as he had been trapped in Egypt. He brings Simeon out before their eyes and binds, and binds him, just like Joseph himself had been bound and driven off to Egypt. And Joseph's brothers are clever enough not to miss the point. 
as soon as all this misfortune comes upon them, immediately it conjures up in their mind what they'd done to their brother. Look at verse 21. Surely we're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we wouldn't listen. (laughs) Joseph doesn't listen either, does he? That's why this distress has come upon us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They think they're being punished for what they did to their brother 20 years ago. And the irony is, they actually are. (laughs) Joseph is doing to them exactly what they did to him. But most significant of all, I think, the brothers see that this is not just some Egyptian official who's doing this to them, but actually behind this stands the God of heaven and earth. As they return home, they find the payment for the grain uh, in the tops of their sacks and they, they, they're terrified. They're terrified because they think they're going to be arrested for stealing from the Egyptians. But notice what they say in verse 29... Uh, sorry, verse 28, I think it is. What is this that God has done to us? It's God who's dealing with them. That's what they see. Joseph's plans show something to us about the brothers. What it shows is that the, the guilt of what they'd done 20 years ago still lay just just underneath the surface of their lives. And so something like this happened and immediately they view the events through the prism of what had happened 20 years before. It turns out that they'd never dealt with what they'd done in the past. They'd never confessed it to their father. They'd never dealt with it with God. And decades later, they still feel the guilt because of it. And so the moment that misfortune befalls them, it conjures up the past as well. John Ensor, in his wonderful book, The Great Work of the Gospel, he says that without genuine repentance, our feelings of guilt, our feelings of guilt are like dandelions. You know, you, you run the mower over them <laughs> and then they just grow back. So many of us deal with sin in that way. We lop the top off our feelings of guilt. We push it under the surface, but we fail to actually rip the roots out of the ground by dealing with sin in the light of the gospel. We cover things up rather than bringing things to light and heaping it at the foot of the cross. Sin is like vampires, you know, you bring it into the light and it turns into a pile of dust. (laughs) Sin is destroyed when we confess it to God and when we ask God to forgive us and we trust in the forgiveness that he offers. So you might be hiding in your heart something that happened 20 years ago, Uh, And you're hiding it because you're too ashamed to bring it out into the light. 
bring it out even into the light with God. But the trouble is it keeps cropping its head up. It keeps bringing you down uh, and you keep pushing it away. What you need to do is acknowledge that to God. You need to say, Lord, what I did was wrong. And all these years I pretended that it wasn't. Or I pretended that it was okay. Or pretended I didn't need to do anything about it. It doesn't matter whether it was malicious or not. That's not the point. What matters is that you did it and that you need to deal with it with God. There might be people too that you need to speak with. That is, you might not just have to speak with God, but you might have to speak to somebody else, somebody that you've wronged. A relationship might have been completely destroyed because of what you've done. And you need to not only address that with God, you need to address that with the person themselves. To live with unaddressed sin in our lives kills off the joy of the gospel. It keeps us living in the place where Joseph's brothers were living, that is, where every misfortune reminds us of what we've done and where every misfortune makes us think, is God punishing me today because of what I did? But failing to deal with sin not only kills off the joy of the gospel, to completely fail to address sin also risks the wrath of God. To keep saying to ourselves, she'll be right about all sin, risks uh, inviting on ourselves the wrath of God. God only asks us one thing in order to escape his just penalty of rejecting and offending him, and that is that we humble ourselves. It's such a simple thing to do, to humble ourselves and to confess our sin uh, and to receive in faith the forgiveness and reconciliation of God in Jesus. It's such a simple thing to do, isn't it? And yet instead we choose the much harder route of burying things uh, under the surface. Joseph's encounter with his brother, rem, brothers reminds us of the need to deal with the past by dealing with God. Well, in the next part of the story, Joseph's brothers return home. They see their father. They explain to him what's happened. They explain how Simeon was left in Egypt. Dad, you're not going to believe it. Uh, another one of the brothers uh, is, uh, has gone missing. They explain to him how they have to take Benjamin back, but Jacob is totally unwilling to let them take Benjamin to Egypt because he's afraid that what will happen to Benjamin is what happened to Joseph, that he'll disappear, that he'll die, um, that he won't receive him back. And so Jacob is more willing for Simeon to stay in Egypt rotting in jail than he is to send Benjamin back uh, in the hope of recovering them all. Uh, he even rejects Simeon's offer. Simeon uh, expresses one of these, uh, sorry, Reuben it is, offers to take Benjamin down to Egypt on the guarantee of the life of his two sons. Uh, but even still, Jacob can't bear the thought. Uh, and it's not until they're starving and they have to go back, and it's not until Judah also offers to take Benjamin down on the guarantee of his own life and his own reputation, it's not until then that Jacob finally relents. And in chapter 42, they, the brothers head off to Egypt. They're invited to dinner with Joseph. Um, they think it's a trap, understandably, which it is, but it's not a trap in the way that they're expecting. Uh, Joseph is far more cunning 
than they imagine. They think he's going to beat them up. <laughs> uh, he is going to trick them, uh, which is what he does in chapter 44. And we'll keep reading from, uh, from chapter 44, uh, more of the story. It says there in verse 1 of chapter 44, now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, go after those men at once and when you catch up with them, say to them, why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. When he caught up with them, he repeated these words to them. But they said to him, Why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. Lost my place. There it is. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. Very well then, he said, let it be as you say. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free from blame. Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this they tore their clothes. Then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, what is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? What can we say to my Lord, Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. But Joseph said, Far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who is found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. <laughs> Joseph's plan is unbelievably clever. He's arranged for Benjamin to come down to Egypt. He's arranged for Benjamin to have the, gold, the silver goblet in his sack. He's arranged for them to search the sacks in order from oldest to youngest to increase the suspense. And in doing it, he presents the brothers with an almost irresistible opportunity to betray another one of Jacob's favourite sons. They don't even need to get their hands dirty this time. Last time they had to arrange the trade uh, and throw their brother in the well. This time all they have to do is to say, well, looks like Benjamin's guilty. We'll just leave him here. We can go back to our father. He'll love us. And he'll forget about Joseph and he'll forget about Benjamin. But what Judah says next shows how far these men have come. Verse 18, 
Then Judah went up to him and said, Pardon your servant, my lord. Let me speak a word to my lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My lord asked his servants, Do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, We have an aged father, and there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead, and he is the only one of my mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me so I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what my Lord had said. Then our father said, Go back and buy a little more food. But we said, we can't go down. Only if our youngest brother is with us will we go. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me and I said, He has surely been torn to pieces and I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too and harm comes to him, you will bring my grey head down to the grave in misery. So now, if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the grey head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then... Please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in the place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. Judah's response shows how much he has changed from the man who sold his brother into slavery. When it looks like Joseph is going to keep Benjamin in Egypt as his slave, Judah speaks up. Benjamin's there under his protection. He's made the guarantee And Judah offers his life in exchange for the life of his younger brother. It's even more remarkable, actually, because Judah is implicitly accepting the fact that his father would rather that he rot in jail in Egypt than that Benjamin would rot in jail in Egypt. The bitterness of his father's favouritism, which led him to betray Joseph in the first place, is no longer there. He offers himself in the place of Benjamin rather than let his father plummet into despair for a second time. Andrew Reid in his commentary on Genesis describes Judah's speech as a point-for-point undoing of their previous sin. Judah might not be able to undo what he did to Joseph, but he can stop the same thing from happening a second time. He shows the fruit of God's work in his life, a work achieved through Joseph, but a work of God nonetheless. Judah's transformation is a work, a great, a work of great beauty from the hand of God. And it's one of the encouragements and, the, and blessings, I think, of the Christian life to see God doing those kinds of works in the lives, in our own lives, and in the lives of our fellow Christians 
around us as well. To see God change people like he changed Judah from a man who was bitter, selfish, self-absorbed, resentful to a man who was willing to sacrifice himself so that his brother could go free. That's an amazing thing. To see God change us and the people around us uh, so that we aren't who we were before, to see God change us with ever-increasing glory into the likeness of Jesus is a remarkable thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's so beautiful to see the life of Jesus take root in people's hearts so that a person who was selfish and bitter and jealous becomes a person who is willing to offer themselves up for others. Uh, To see a person who was hateful and spiteful become a person who's loving and forgiving. To see people who were greedy become generous. To see people who were lazy become self-disciplined in serving God. To see people who were controlling become people who are able to live under the leadership of others. One of the great signs that God has been at work in us through his Holy Spirit is that when the same opportunities for sin presents itself, we take a different route. In the past, we would have been bitter and resentful. Now we're forgiving and large-hearted. Joseph presented his brothers with the same scenario, but they chose a different route. God's testing and God's disciplining through Joseph had led them to genuine repentance. And God's testing and discipline in our lives ought to lead us to genuine repentance and change as well. Well, in the end, it all proves too much for Joseph. Uh, When he hears the man that Judah has become, uh, he breaks down. Let's keep reading from chapter 45. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence! So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers, and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's household heard about it. Poor old Joseph. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers weren't able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed. And do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have, I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. 
Tell my father about all the honour accorded to me in Egypt and about everything you have seen and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept and Benjamin embraced him weeping and he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward his brothers talked with him. When the news reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all his officials were pleased. I think these would have to be some of those beautiful words, one of the most beautiful scenes in all the Bible. It's so human, I think, and so real. Joseph is in tears, he's weeping uncontrollably. I just had this vision of him sobbing, you know, uh, and saying to his brothers, I'm Joseph, and they're, and they're there thinking to themselves, wow, it's bad enough that, this, that the second in charge of Egypt was threatening to throw them in jail. Now it's their brother that they'd sold into slavery who's standing before them, <laughs> bursting into tears. And they're thinking, man, this, our brother's going to send us to the guillotine. He's in tears, they're terrified. But Joseph doesn't do any of what they feared. Instead, he says to them, come, come, he invites them to come around him, he invites them to come close to him. And he says to them, don't be distressed, don't be afraid over what you did. And he kisses them and he hugs them. It's an extraordinary act of Joseph. After all that he'd been through, it's extraordinary that his heart is so full of love. It's extraordinary that his heart is so full of love rather than hate or retribution or bitterness. He loves them and he means for them to be completely reconciled. He means for the past to be completely forgotten, for their relationship to be completely healed and for it to be completely new, from the, to start from scratch. He can feel that way because he has a big view of God. He can feel that way because behind all the misfortunes that they had brought on him, he can see the hand of God. He can see that God was doing something good. He says to them, don't be distressed. Why not? Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. It was not you who sent me, says Joseph, but God. When we trust God and when our hearts uh, are anchored in, in God and his sovereignty over our lives, our hearts can be so full of love as Jacob, uh, Joseph's heart was full of love. It can be full of love even toward those who have wronged us. When we see God's hand in our lives weaving good out of evil, weaving good even out of the evil that people have perpetrated against us, when we see God working out his great salvation through our discomfort, when we see God bringing about a great deliverance through our pain, it gives us a totally different perspective on what it is that we have experienced. And it gives us a totally different perspective on the people who have hurt us. And it frees us to love the people that are the objects of God's love as well. When we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, it frees us to love the people uh, 
who have done evil against us because we know that God has greater purposes. When we see that God's plan is to save lives and to bring about a great deliverance, and when we see the world through the lens of the cross where God brought our great good out of his own suffering, it frees us to love other people with a heart as full as the heart of God, which has uh, loved us as well. But in many ways, the story of Joseph is not just about our relationship with each other. It's not just about us learning to love people who've hurt us. It's also about our relationship with God. It is, in many ways, a microcosm of the gospel. The favourite son, sold by his brothers, sentenced to death, raised up to power, unmasked before his accusers. It's a familiar story, isn't it? Jesus is God's favourite son. Jesus is God's true one and only son. As human beings, we sold him into death, but God raised him up and seated him at his right hand and has given him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And like Joseph's brothers, that's a terrifying thought, isn't it? That we stand before Jesus, who rules the world, as people who've sold him into slavery and sold him into death. Except that, like Joseph, Jesus' heart is full of love towards us. Why is that? Because God sent him ahead of us in order that through him he might bring about a great deliverance. Our evil, by God's power, brought about our great good. Joseph is such a picture of Jesus. Weeping when the guilt of our Past wrongs weigh us down, poking and prodding us, leading us, orchestrating events to bring us to realise what we've done and to bring us to genuine repentance. Standing with open arms and weeping over us and saying, don't be distressed, don't fear because of what you've done. Come close to me. Unlike Harry Potter's son, we don't need a time-turner to undo our past, to undo our past or to undo the past of other people. Because God is a God who can work all things together for the good of those who love him. And he has worked all our evil and the evil of others together for good on the cross of his beloved son. You and I have wronged God, we've wronged the God who made us and loves us. But in Jesus, God stands with his arms wide open, arms wide open on the cross, inviting us to come to him uh, and to embrace him and to be embraced by him as his brother and as God's son. If you haven't come to Jesus yet, he stands with his arms wide open, welcoming you to come. If you haven't come to Jesus yet, why don't you come to God today? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we come to you as your children who have sold your favourite son to death. And Lord, we are struck by the enormity of that. But we're so overwhelmed that Jesus stands before us and he speaks to us even now and he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Lord, we pray that you would enable each one of us to hear that invitation and to receive it in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that your love, which has overflowed into our lives, would overflow from our lives too into the lives of others. Help us to be people who, having been forgiven, forgive others, who, having been loved, love others, who, having been served, serve others as well. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.